Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Draft Reading Series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in Lighthouse Workshops that hovers around a given theme. The Draft happens once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The Draft 14.0 features nonfiction writer Anna Stull, novelist Lisa Mahoney, poet Dale Schellinger, and short story writer Randall Sylvan. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. I want to thank you all for coming to the Draft 14.0. Who are you? Oh, I'm Andrea Dupree. Do, I, do we know each other? Does every... I'm the one who always comes up and says, hi, do I know you? And it's really awkward for a little while, and then I say, well, I'm actually part of the organization. I'm not just hitting on you. We're weird. Um, I said not just hitting on you or weird. So you're not just surfing for casual hookups? That's not good. just. Not just. Not just. Great. Wonderful. Anyway, thank you so much for coming. This is one of my favorite nights of each quarter of the year, (laughs) each season, each season. Season. Um, What we do with the draft is we ask instructors from all the going workshops at Lighthouse, and they're usually, I don't know, 23, 25? There were like almost 40 classes this session. As I meant to say, 40 She's just the program director. Yeah. I just set up the classes, but I don't actually pay attention to what we're doing. So there are about 40 workshops, and we circulate an email like halfway through the workshops just saying, hey, do you have anyone you can draft um, to read to give us a really entertaining evening um, full of variety and insight and heartfelt moments and laughter and tears and... All the things you don't get going to, by the way, a Rockies game, which we did yesterday. There were tears. There were tears. There were tears. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. You know, you're trying to get your kids excited about baseball, and there's, like, not a single hit. Well, I guess there was one hit. On were, our, like, one and a half hits. Otherwise, then it was, yeah. It was a losing proposition. Yeah, it was so we thought, what could we do that's a lot more fun than that? And it's here, some awesome stories from people in the workshops. And what we try to do is vary it by genre. And we actually succeeded this time. We have a short story writer. We have a nonfiction writer. We have a poet. Ooh. Fancy. You know actually, I actually wrote pause for snapping. I'm very excited because I, I hear through the grapevine that he's actually going to rhyme words. No way. Yeah. He's a real, I mean, poet a with a poet. capital real P. Yeah. And then we also have a novelist who's going to read her entire novel. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a little break in the middle to see if anyone... <clears throat> So I really do want to get started because the readers are probably sitting there going, why don't they shut up? have to pee. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> oh, what? What happened? What did they say? I missed it. Can you please say that again for the podcast? I want to make sure it gets on there. <laughs> I missed it. Did you? So we're going to start. Oh. Are you going to edit that out? (laughs) He never never edits anything out of the podcast. What's the point of having an editor if they never edit anything out? Um, Okay, so I want to start with um, a short story writer. You have my approval. I'm transitioning into the actual program. Um, And this is somebody who I've had in my workshops before, so I know he's great, but he was nominated by Polly Younger, and she sent her introduction. All the other instructors who nominated a writer are here tonight, so they'll be reading, but I'm going to read Paula's introduction. 
Um, Randy Sylvan appears to be a mild-mannered corporate man, but he has the writer's heart. Superman, sorry. (laughs) He has the writer's heart and sense of humor. Randy is a dedicated writer in Lighthouser. He was frustrated with the plethora of bad dad stories out there and decided to write stories about good but struggling fathers who have (laughs) failed in some way. Not to be confused with the bad dad stories, the failing, struggling dads. Um, Still, no matter the problems, the love for their children always comes through, and that's true. In his story, Delayed, a son's learning problems has delayed him in school, but has also delayed the father in his career and life. But through these problems, they find something beautiful and discover that sometimes there are advantages in doing something differently. This was a hard introduction to write because Randy is a beloved student and we've been learning together for a few years now. He moved on to the advanced class where he belongs, but decided to come and hang with us. And I didn't take that personally, being the advanced (laughs) short story instructor. It was fine. Um, With us intermediate people for a session. I encourage that. (laughs) I've enjoyed watching him grow as a writer, and I can't wait to see what he comes up with next. And even though he works for Comcast, if you have a problem with cable... Don't contact him. (laughs) Randy Sullivan. Thanks for that uh, great introduction. I wish Paula was here and wanted to do a quick uh, shout-out to all the great Lighthouse instructors who uh, totally rock. So thanks for all the great stuff you've done. And Comcast does kick butt. So, So, uh, (laughs) this is called uh, Delayed. When you play basketball with him, you sometimes forget. He wears his Gallinari jersey and his Denver Nuggets shorts. He looks the part of a six-year-old ball player. You pass him the ball, and you're happy when he catches it. You show him how to shoot, and even though he can't quite get his joints coordinated the way you'd like, he still makes baskets in his own way, with his own technique, and you give him high fives when he succeeds. You take water breaks together. He sits on your lap, and you ask him if he likes basketball. He says he does, and you hug him, and he hugs you back. So you teach your son how to play basketball, like your dad did with you in your driveway, and you pass along the family hoops tradition. Then other kids show up, and they run faster and play better than him. You watch as those kids run from one end of the court to the other, and you wonder why they can do that so effortlessly, and your boy cannot. And then you remember. You remember that your son is different. And you look at him, and even after all those years of trying to become used to it, you know the stages agree for all bullshit, and acceptance never comes for some things. You reconcile yourself to the reality, but you never accept it. You still wish and hope and pray for the magical solution that will touch your boy and make him like everyone else. And you are forever pissed at the injustice of it all. He doesn't know he's different. He laughs like the other kids and tries to make friends. He, he throws them his ball and they throw it back and they take turns playing together on the playground like they're the same. But the other kids will play competitive ball and go on dates and take the SAT And the other parents will sit in auditoriums celebrating conquests and compare notes on college acceptances while you and your wife discuss single-digit aptitude tests and special school requirements with empathetic specialists. They will explain to you how the bell curve works and how many standard deviations your son is away from the norm. They will say these things with a smile on their face, and they'll tell you how terrific your boy is, all the while counting their blessings that they don't have such a child. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Your wife had the perfect pregnancy. Development milestones were hit out of the park, and all risk-identifying tests came out the way you wanted. Labor came on his due date, and he arrived a full eight pounds, seven ounces, a tank of a boy with perfect coloring. At the hospital, you saw sickly infants with round-the-clock treatment from the nurses, and you you thank your lucky stars your child wasn't the one with issues but you were premature in those thoughts. Trouble arrived early. 
He needed nebulizer treatments twice daily at four months. Your wife sang to him while the breathing mask covered his mouth and nose, and he cried as the machine forced the medicine down into his lungs. You listened to the hum of the breathing machine and the sound of your firstborn son's cries and your, beautiful, and your wife's beautiful singing voice as you sat in the adjacent living room preparing PowerPoint slides for the next day's board presentation. You fucking hate PowerPoint. Your pediatrician downplayed your concerns and explained that he was a big boy and would hit milestones at his own pace. But after attending a Halloween party where all the other nine-month-olds in their princess and cowboy costumes crawled and interacted with each other while your enormous son in his pumpkin costume sat in the middle of the floor unable to move like a big orange blob for the other kids to maneuver around. You ate the party cookies and told the other parents how adorable their kids looked. You joined the reminiscing of late-night feedings. You were with beaming parents with smiles plastered to their faces, and, not, and all you wanted to do is flee. Flee because you didn't belong, because you were envious. So you leave early, and you and your wife spend the drive home comparing the kids already walking and talking to your son. That is the day your life changes. You knew despite what an over-the-hill pediatrician had told you, that there was something wrong, very wrong, with your son, your firstborn, your son, who was named after your father, who was the first grandchild for your mother, who you and your wife waited years and years for because you became parents in your late 30s. Your wife said he'd be fine. He just needed time to catch up. She was a hopeful idealist. You were the pessimistic realist. She believed, wanted to believe, he was fine. You believed, but didn't want to, that he wasn't. You saw neurologists and geneticists and ophthalmologists and physical therapists. You had brain MRIs, chest X-rays, and blood work performed. You had the best and brightest medical minds analyzing the innards and outards of your boy. He became a science experiment. One that ultimately ended not with a noun like autism or death, one that you could concretely understand and research, but an adjective, delayed. Your son is now delayed. And the most heartbreaking part is when he's the happiest. When you and him are at the park riding riding bikes and he tells you unsolicited that he loves you and you watch him lick his ice cream cone afterwards. Because you know the harshness of the world, And you know that when he's happy now, he's having the best times he will ever have in his life. You know that when you are not there to protect him from the cruelty of other kids, from the cruelty of the universe, he's going to have to deal with that on his own. And you know how that is going to be. So when you take him to a Nuggets basketball game, like your dad did with you, and you watch him clap along with the rest of the fans, and how he insists on staying until the end of the game because he doesn't care who wins or loses. He just wants to be in the middle of the action. And when he falls asleep in the car on the way home because he worked so hard having fun, and you put on his Nuggets pajamas and tuck him into his NBA covers and whisper to him how much you love him, you see him with the wonder of a child (laughs) who thinks that he is safe and secure in the world, and you know what is ahead of him. (laughs) And you want... And you want that experience, that specific night, to last forever for him and you. You know that you're neglecting your younger son. Even though he's only four years old, he's already experienced that sometimes you do give to each according to their needs. And you pray that, for now, he's okay with that, although you know there's danger there. You sometimes take your youngest on special trips to the museum, just you and him, to make up for the nights where he doesn't get a story read because you're busy calming your other boy. Those nights happen more often than they should. And when you look at the museum's space displays, you ask him what he wants to be when he grows up. He says he wants to be an astronomer. When you're at the dinosaur skeletons, he says he wants to dig up fossils. You tell him that people who dig up fossils are called paleontologists, and he repeats paleontologists back to you, phonetically perfect. And even on your special day with your neglected son, your mind zooms back to your other boy. How he could never say that word. How he could never become a paleontologist, even if he wanted to. You see an IMAX 3D movie about dinosaurs that your youngest son loves and talks about for the next week, but you still neglect him in your mind. You know from a macro standpoint that competition is the best system to generate opportunity for all. 
but you also know that a competitive landscape leaves, leaves no room for a boy like yours. You know the system is set up to have winners and losers, and up until having your child, you always felt you were on the winner's side, and you didn't spend enough time worrying about those dealt the wrong hand. Now, though, you think an awful lot about the losers of the competitive game, about those that weren't blessed with all the advantages you have had throughout life. So you give money to all the street people who ask for it, for karma's sake. You don't buy into the conventional wisdom that they're lazy or drunken or stupid. You wonder if they were diagnosed with anything when they were kids. You wonder what those parents were like. You no, you no longer believe in a system that rewards winners and penalizes losers, so you go through life accepting incompatibility with ideas and know that absolute purity of belief is an invasion of reality. You see no problem agreeing and disagreeing with capitalism, just like you can love your son and hate his delays and stutter at the same time. You realize that nothing is a zero-sum game. So you no longer think in macro terms. Everything becomes microcentric. Your boy, his life, each experience within each day. You don't have five-year plans. You don't think about where he will be or where you will be in some unknown, indefinable future. You plan that Disney trip now. You share the 15-minute drive to school each day, reaching back to his seat to hold his hand, and you talk about that day. He tells you if he has art or PE, and you ask him which one he likes more. He says P.E., and you say to yourself, that's my boy. You find the best speech therapists. You drive cross town for the special soccer league. You roll into office at 9 after dropping him off instead of your old routine of arriving early and staying late. You come home when deadlines remain and your boss's emails aren't answered until your son is asleep. You're no longer on anyone's fast track. You're no longer on any career track. You feel like a terrible person when you give him to the teachers at the public school kindergarten. You want to protect him from everyone and everything, and you're ready to pounce at the slightest hint of mistreatment. But while you're preparing to pounce, he's smiling and living. So you learn to trust. You find out that there are wonderful people who help your son, and you're amazed at his progress. His speech is smoother, his running faster, and he gets invited to birthday parties. You buy bagels for the teachers <laughs> every Friday to thank them for doing remarkable things with him, things you never could have done on your own. And the teachers say they're just doing their jobs, but you know the difference between a job like yours and what they do. When you receive Student of the Month, you take a two-hour lunch to attend the ceremony. Your wife and mother come to share the special moment. You see him standing single file next to all the other boys and girls, and again, he looks the part. He wears his special Oxford shirt and khaki pants, and with his wireframe glasses and slimmed-down stomach, he looks like a mini-you. He then waits for his turn, like everybody else. When they call his name to accept his certificate, he walks on stage, like everyone else. And he has his picture taken with the principal, just like everyone else. But then something happens. He does something different from all the other children. He sees you sitting in the audience, yells, Daddy, Daddy, and comes running down the stage, down the steps, and runs up the aisle and jumps in your lap. He puts his arms around you, and you put your arms around him, and you tell him how proud you are. The teachers tell him to go back on stage for the joint picture, but he doesn't budge. He shares a special moment with you, and you've never been happier in your life. So you do have your special conquest moment in the school auditorium. You read books with him and you notice he is starting to sound out words. He reads the sight words, the thes and ands, and instead of you reading him books, you are reading together. You point to each word and wait to see if it is a word that he knows. Sometimes he surprises you and gets a word you never thought he knew. Sometimes he misses a word he should get. <laughs> but there he is, reading. And you know about the scores and all the tests administered over the years, and you know about his individualized education plan and all the special help he gets, but there you are, laying on his bed, reading stories together, and you allow yourself, just for a minute, to think about what the future might bring. So during the Passover Seder, where he sits on your lap, you read together when the service comes to your seat. He reads the words he can read, and you read the rest, but you're doing it. Together, 
and your youngest son, not to be outdone, sits on his uncle's lap and repeats what his uncle says. So you allow yourself a brief macro thought. You think of the generations and generations of families who have joined together for the Passover Seder and of fathers who have watched their children partake in the telling of the story. The story of overcoming hardship (laughs) and surviving. And for the first time, your family becomes one of those families. Your boys read stories that you read to your father all those years ago. You sit back, take a sip of wine, and forget. Thank you, Randy. Randy often writes really funny, um, <laughs> really funny stuff, and I'm so glad to hear one of the pieces that has um, just about everything in it, and I was prepared for it, as you can see. Um, thank you for that. The next person up is, is um, going to be drafted by one of our newest instructors, Greg Campbell, who um, we heard from... Sources at Lighthouse runs kind of a rollicking fun workshop, which always makes me really insecure. Um, Like laughter and just aha moments and wonderful insights. He has written a lot of great books. One you may have heard of, um, Blood Diamonds, that became a movie uh, starring, I like to call him Leo DiCaprio. And most recently, Pot Incorporated, which has personal familial uh, relevance for me. Um, (laughs) And I'm totally excited to introduce Greg Campbell, who will introduce his draftee, who I'm excited about, too. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, and another quick round of applause for Randy. I thought that was just a... Now I, got, I come up and I've got a whole bunch of jokes, you know, after I follow you. So, uh, all right. Um, well, I am a relatively new instructor uh, here at Lighthouse. And one of the things that I found very quickly that I like the best is on our first day of the workshops, I get a chance to go around and put everybody under the spotlight and say, okay, let's just go around. Everybody introduce yourselves, tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do, and tell us about the project you're working on. And not being familiar with the caliber of workshoppers here at Lighthouse, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that every person, when they opened their mouth, it was like opening another present at Christmas time because, you know, the first person actually ever who introduced herself was a heavily tattooed goth woman who uh, dropped the F-bomb every third sentence and is an admitted uh, recovering alcoholic. So I was like, oh boy, I wonder what she's up to these days. And she's a Lutheran minister. So she's uh, in the midst of writing a book. We had uh, one of our workshoppers is a, is a paleontologist who's following in the footsteps of Charles Darwin. And he, nine times out of 10, couldn't be at our workshops because he would be beaming in remotely, be off in uh, Argentina or somewhere else, and when he could arrive, he was sharing great stories of the giant sloths, you know, that were now extinct. Uh, We had a dentist who um, is now an investigative reporter working on a piece for Mother Jones about an expose on the sugar industry, which is based here in Denver. It's just like, oh my God, all right, I'm not even qualified to run the workshop. But then, as a, as a true test of the caliber of uh, the person I'm getting ready to introduce, the air went out of the room when Anna Stahl introduced herself as an army captain who was Saddam Hussein's personal nurse when Saddam was captured, and she worked at Abu Ghraib prison. And literally, everybody was like, can you go first? Because we really want to read what you have to write about. And... Uh, I've had the real pleasure of having Anna in two workshops um, from one session, and then she came over into the next session. Um, and so I've had a chance to hear and read and comment on and be uh, thoroughly 
um, entertained by these uh, stories of her time in Iraq. And uh, that's, in fact, one of the reasons that I chose um, to nominate her here, because the stories themselves are so unique, but also because as a, as a workshop participant, Anna brought a level of electricity and enthusiasm to the workshops that you didn't even recognize until on the rare occasion she couldn't attend, and then suddenly everybody's like they needed another cup of coffee every time they showed up, and it's like, what's going on here? Oh, Anna's not here. She's not like, hey, what's going on? So um, it, is, it is my great, great pleasure to introduce Anna Stoll as, um, as a reader for this evening, and she will be reading an essay called Music to My Ears. So please make her welcome. Thank you. So it's a bad time to realize I have to go pee, right? <laughs> so I do have to say Greg's classes were infectious, and we had, a, we had an absolute blast. Um, he's been instrumental in my ability to be able to write, as Lighthouse has been. Uh, I've been doing the classes for about a year now, and um, it really is through the instructors that I was able to even feel that I was in a safe environment, that I could write, that it was going to be listened to openly, and, and um, so Greg rules. Thank you. <laughs> okay, music to my ears. Thumbing through a worn, crappy, pocket-sized English-Arabic translation guide, I think I ask in worn, crappy Arabic, what have you eaten today? The group laughs, a welcome sound Abu Ghraib, clearly indicating I butchered the translation. The first man in line sticks a dirty, chafed hand through the chain-link fence towards me. Searching for a finger with the least amount of bruising, I cleaned it with an alcohol prep pad and then pierced the tough skin with a lancet to draw blood. Most of us, detainee and soldier alike, were dehydrated in the heat of summer. The blood slowly emerged, and the sample was then loaded into a handheld glucose monitoring device. I looked at the man. Shrub my, Sadiq. For this Arabic, I knew by heart. Drink water, my friend. His blood sugar through the roof. He pressed his body against the fence and received an injection of insulin in the fat of his belly. When I finished, I moved on. Relentless wind swirled dust into curtains that veiled my walk to the next tent. My army assignment required me to don 68 pounds of gear in order to administer insulin twice a day to the medically fragile of Abu Ghraib prison. It was the summer of 2006, and the war had been going strong for three solid years, which had Abu bursting at its seams. I had a container filled with charts and supplies and kept the insulin in a pouch next to a cold pack where my ammo would have gone. No firearms inside the camps. Only less than lethal means a prisoner suppression was used during riots and the such. Although, with an accurate headshot, anything can kill. My hands were full, as were most my pockets. Stuffed with ice-cold Gatorade and needles, I trudged across rocky, uneven terrain, traveling from camp to camp, with streams of salty sweat stinging my eyes. Some days I've experienced heat like I have never known before. Even the mercury seems to have evaporated away, leaving just a tiny drop at 131 degrees Fahrenheit. Abu's entire perimeter was surrounded by a 20-foot sniper wall and then another 12-foot interior wall encased the outdoor compounds, which held thousands of detainees. The men had all been moved outside after the prisoner abuse scandal of the fall of 2003. They were living in Eureka tents, each compound mock mockingly enclosed by a final thin layer of security, an American-made chain-link fence. The smaller compounds held between 15 and 30 men, and the general population tents held 500 per section. The men were divided into categories based on nationality, religion, severity of charge, and age, all of which spanned over two square miles. Sunni, Shia, and third country nationals comprised the majority of the populations. Notably, though, Kurds, Tekfiri, Wahhabists, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban were housed in smaller proportions in a more secluded, secured setting called Red South. However, the juvenile population was lumped together at the North End, regardless of religion or nationality. Occasionally, new newly acquired detainees lied about who they were, 
their age or their religion and ended up in the wrong tent, only to be beaten within hours by the opposing tent mates. Most lived through the experience, but sadly some did not. Like a trucker on a long haul, I knew all the good places to stop for chow during my insulin pass. Each compound had its hierarchy and social system network, both inside the imprisoned and outside with the U.S. soldiers. For some reason, certain guard shacks got more ice or a better selection of drinks or snacks. Covertly stuffing little Debbies into the last open space of a pocket, I joke with the sergeants on duty about a plethora of crazy last names our United States Army has collected. Llewellyn, Saborit, Mormon, and Sunda were on for the day. I was collectively known as the Stull and Stultz Show. Stull, my last name, and Stultz, my roommate's last name. Jessica worked in the luxury of air conditioning as a night shift med surge nurse inside the Abu Ghraib hospital. A thankless job for sure, as air conditioning was the only luxury they had. After enough time to cool down in the guard shack, prison radio chatter interrupted our jovial banter. Hey, ma'am, those juvies are going crazy for you. Saborit says they're chanting again. Mormon, too, le- too lazy to lift an arm, motioned his chin towards the door in the direction of the din to get me to calm him down. Fine, I was out of jokes anyways. By July, the juvenile population had waned, and they could be housed in two adjacent small tents. Boys, some as young as eight, came running to the fence, kicking up dust, curling their tiny fingers around the metal. They pressed their faces close. Each eye had its own loop in the fence, but the vertical chain link left a depression in the fleshier of noses, which gave them an ironic peace symbol look. Mrs. Mrs., it's Friday, the younger ones squealed. The teenagers, too cool to join in, sat propped on chairs made of sandbags, smiling, yet sizing me up all the same. And in a moment, only for myself, I felt real love for these boys. I forget the war, the torture, the incessant mortar attacks, and the ridiculous boredom. The summer had been long, hot, and slow. Only my arrival would bring the boys out of their air-conditioned tent. I'd say it was the dog days of summer, except Iraqis hate dogs and think Americans are crazy for being outside in the heat. Arabs understand outdoor work halts entirely from May to September, and why we never learn that, I'll never know. (laughs) Fridays were treat day. I have functioned as the boys' primary care manager for several months. In the beginning, the ones skilled in the craft of master manipulation drove me absolutely crazy with their demands begging, pleading, yelling, tears. But who could blame them? This was Abu Ghraib. Across 30 years, hundreds of thousands of people were murdered here or left to die in torturous solitude. The diabolical Saddam Hussein regime was responsible for creating one of the most feared structures in the Arab world. Over time, the rawness and stark reality that a city's worth of people were tortured where I slept grinds in and a, cloud of confu- ugh, and a cloud of confusion and despondency settles. I imagine the same was for the detainees. It was a haunting feeling, not one that controlled your daily life, but one that lingered in the back of your mind and the forefront of your dreams. I've been nowhere else on earth where the saying, if these walls could talk, has meant so much. There's something about sleeping, working, bathing, day in and day out, in a place that is so horrible, something very unsettling about it, as if developers had disgustingly put up townhomes at Dachau. Breaking bread on hollowed ground of broken bones won't leave me for some time, I fear. My own heart was slowly breaking the longer I stayed. What these kids needed most was a mother, Not a Band-Aid, not a Tylenol, but some solid parenting, discipline, hope, and love. None of which I could have truly delivered. So to assuage the demands, I decided to offer a treat on Fridays for good behavior on all of the other days. Once I gave a boy a coveted tube of chapstick. The boys went wild and were amazingly loyal. When we first got to Abu, our logistics department had a bumpy ride figuring out the theater ordering system, and a few weeks later, a full pallet of tens of thousands of tubes of cherry chapstick arrived. 
Note to self, the decimal point matters. For the last few weeks, I'd been giving the boys chewable vitamins. They tasted good, and it was good for them. Closest thing to mothering I could do. All the inmates at Abu Ghraib wore an orange or yellowish jumpsuit, depending on the manufacturer. But when you were really bad, convicted bad, you wore red. The boys looked like a sunset as the smaller ones got dwarfed by the taller ones as they started to clump together at the fence for Friday treat day. In English, I began the communion by discussing the conditions of the treats. Little hands began to stick through the fence, palms up. I greeted them all with a smile. Three pills for the smaller ones, five for the bigger kids. I learned to make periodic spot checks during the week to see if they still had their vitamins squirreled away in a pocket. I quickly learned to ration anything after watching handfuls of vitamins get tossed into dry mouths all at once. But the kids couldn't get more than five, or else they would have traded them for bigger and badder things at the shower tent. All little fists now full of sugary vitamin goodness. And what do we say? I ask in a motherly tone. And to the amazement of my American ears that I was able to teach them this, 30 adoring boys belt out, We are Flintstone kids, 10 million strong and growing. And I have connected with my imprisoned sons. That was awesome. Well worth the wait. I've heard about Anna for a long time and lovely. One of my favorite things was I thought it was going to be a chorus of thank you. Did you guys? I was so glad it didn't go there. Um, Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, Can you see how lucky we are, all of us, that we get to be around all these people and write with them and hear their stories? Uh, the next person who is, oh, Mike asked me when, when I went back there a second ago, what's the topic for tonight? Because we have a topic. <laughs> Did you know there was a topic? There's a topic. It's um, other worlds. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> for example, the two pieces that were read so far, other worlds, gain access to other, which is really all writing, I think. Um, the next person who is nominating someone is such a fabulous poet and entertainer and thinker and lover. What's that? He's good at telling jokes. He's a good joke teller, although not without controversy about his jokes. Um, he's not someone to spend a lot of time worrying about what's politically correct, which I think is a compliment. I really do. Um, So David Rothman has some great, great books of his own out. One of my favorite collections of poetry is called The Elephant's Chiropractor. If you can get it, do. You won't be sorry. Um, And that's one of his, by the way, books. And he's also one of those guys where I often get requests from the University of Denver. They'll contact me and say, who do you know who can do this? And who do you know who can do that? And the most recent one was, who do you know who could teach Ulysses? And Rothman is a poet, but I still said David Rothman without hesitation. He was like the first name that came to mind because I find it indecipherable. And I figured that it's probably just, you know, morning serial reading for him. Um, Anyway, David J. Rothman is going to be introducing Dale Schellinger, so let's get him up here. David Rothman. So this guy walks into his bedroom holding holding a sheep under his arm. No. (laughs) Sorry, you're going to have to, you'll have to approach me later for that. Um, Yes. We uh, no. It's a, well, never mind. The uh, I was struck by the comments earlier about rhyme, which you know really is not a crime <laughs> and can be sublime. 
much of the time. But uh, I'm here to introduce a wonderful student, Dale Schellinger, who does rhyme at times and often sublimely, but uh, I don't think he's rhyming tonight. Uh, Dale uh, started taking my classes, I don't know, four years ago now, maybe something like that, four and a half and five, longer ago than, I mean, we were both in our adolescence when it, it's a really long, I can't even remember, I had braces. And um, it became obvious to me immediately that he is an extraordinary um, talent. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd ask students to come in, you know, to write, go home and write a sonnet. Dale would come back with 42. Uh, <laughs> and they'd all be good. He, uh, has an ex- he was a, spent much of his career as a child psychologist or psychiatrist. Psychologist or psychiatrist? Psychologist. And uh, he brings that to his work. He has extraordinary insight into other people. He's one of these poets who thankfully doesn't merely write about himself. He writes about others and does it uh, with tremendous insight. He also uh, plums the depths of history. I think he, he has read a tremendous amount of historical material. It winds up in his poems. He's, he's got an extraordinary um, imagination that he brings to that material. He reminds me of somebody like uh, Robert Browning, for example, um, or maybe Dante. You know, let's go big here. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, he's, uh, uh, and he continues to write uh, prolifically. I think there's... Uh, a lot of publication in his future. I'm sure there's a book in his future. And I'll just close, since we're talking about rhyme, with a Clara Hugh that I composed about um, Dale while sitting there waiting for, uh, you know, because I was thinking about rhyme. Um, Dale Schellinger has John Dillinger appeal. Good poets borrow, great ones steal. And uh, Dale Schellinger. <laughs> Other people worry about following other readers. I worry about following Rothman's introduction. (laughs) All right. How it all began, or we the people. We make stuff up. We always have. Beginning so long ago, no one alive remembers, nor any recently dead whom we once asked, if any of the stories we still tell recount how we first started making stuff up. It's all we do. We made up gods, discarded them for new ones, made up with gods we once rejected, rejected them again. Until we were called the faithless people no gods would make a pact with. Profligate though we are, we have had runs of centuries sticking with the same gods. Mostly not, though. We keep old stories, and here's how one goes. In a desert far away, after dawn, one dusty morning, a herder came, his herds a speck on the eastern horizon, even as they lumbered past our tents. A wealthy man, we thought, we the people who make stuff up. His family, this man's, walking beside their herds and flocks, looking not at us, but at themselves, We started to sing a hymn that we made up, praising the man whose cattle walked in endless procession, lifting dust that blessed us by settling on our faces, our arms, our animals, our tents, and on our women, who, if the strangers looked, were beautiful to cast their eyes upon. Women who would wash the man's feet and rub in oil if he wanted to stop and rest a while. We who make stuff up made that up a lure song for travelers. No malice lurked in our thoughts or hearts, although should the man and all his family accept our hospitality, events might take the turn that turns us into thieves or even murderers. The man was strong. It didn't seem likely, but we prepared just in case. The man said, my feet are weary, and I will rest with you a while. Wine was brought for him, and women bathed his feet in fresh water, and they rubbed them with oil gently. Leaning back on our cushions, but not alone, for he had sons and servants always with him, 
The man relaxed. We brought him some sweetmeats. Lambs were fetched, the first for sacrifice, then spring lambs for a feast. We sang a man-relaxing-while-visiting song. (laughs) We who make stuff up. More women came. They rubbed the feet and shoulders of the sons and of the servants who were with the man. We sang a sons and sons and servants song that we made up so that they would know that we offer the same care to sons and servants as to fathers. But not to wives, daughters, and other women. Too much familiarity with them too often ends in bloodshed, or at least bad feelings. And we who make stuff up had not decided yet what our hospitality might yield. We served our desert fare. Our guests ate well, not sumptuously. We sat up late, but not until dawn dulled the horizon, then flared. The sun proclaiming we must rise and offer prayers. Did we detect a story in the offing? But first we prayed. The man prayed differently than anyone we who make stuff up, had met before. Our prayers gave obeisance to the sun, followed by offerings to household gods, gods of our oasis, and sundry others. The man appeared to pray to one god only, and then prepared a sacrifice to read the auspices for his continued journey. We noticed how healthy he was, well-fed. We almost started a stranger-killing song. But he spoke first. I prayed as you pray once, until the Lord spoke. And he said to me, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And the Lord promised me that I will be a great nation, my name will be great, and I will be a blessing. And he said, In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And then he stopped. Had he no sense, telling his story would repay our kindness. Our eyes grew shifty, and the stranger saw. He spoke. The Lord said something else. He said, and I will bless them that bless you and curse those who curse him who curses you. Straightening himself, the man said, I have seen others look at me as you look at me now. Eyes darting, women slipping away to where your weapons hide. And those who looked at me as you do now faced hard choices. Let us leave, worship my God, or seize their weapons as treachery leads them as swiftly to death as though they were the hind that flees the lion yet cannot escape. Those choices face you now. What happens next often happens to us. We were intrigued, disarmed. We hesitated. The man had threatened us with a simile. (laughs) Granted, it was a sort of skill we marked the passage out of childhood with, and yet the stranger-killing song grew fainter. We who make stuff up all paused as one and thought, here's a man well-spoken, a man we can learn from, a man who may concede that he can learn from us the arts required to make stuff up, a man who thought us worthy to hear his threat couched as simile and get that we were threatened by not just this man, but by, surprisingly, his God, for whom our gift of gab might prove useful if it served his purposes. Let us consider abandoning our gods for this man's. We sang a no-fighting-let's-make-peace song. (laughs) And though the man was skeptical, he'd heard our songs and shared our food and wanted to move on toward the land his god had promised. He said that we could follow him and worship his god, but that as far as herds and flocks went, we were on our own. But we were hooked and left our settled lives, becoming nomads. We made up stuff more varied than before. Our singing and our stories served him well. In time, as always happens, with success came priests and soldiers, and they preferred shunting us aside. 
the stuff that we made up, they did not like. Although the man we followed was a prodigious liar on his own and worthy of respect, he too grew distant. Our families were frequently less blessed than his God's promises had suggested. We, the people who make stuff up, lived on the margins, where we sang our made-up songs and told our stories, wandered away from God's and back again, and we arrived where you find us today. That's a story we tell ourselves, much like our other stories, myths of our origins, or maybe not, no one can really say. Our stories and our songs are those we find crop up the way the Stranger Killing song cropped up the way we sang a new God song because a man threatened us with a simile, (laughs) the way the story I told you just cropped up. Today, we sing a We Who Make Stuff Up song. Come see us tomorrow. We'll sing again. And I'll finish with just a couple of short ones. Fine print. Do I accept conditions that may change without notice? Particularly those. I balk. The contract's terms are way too strange. I accept conditions that may change without notice. Eight words disarrange logic. I'd have to be senile or doze to accept conditions that do not that may change without notice, particularly those. (laughs) And then finally, one I wrote for Fran. We've been married a long time, (laughs) so it's about that. 38th. Who needs another love song? This one's fine. I know less about love songs than about wine. I know less about wine than about you. I know less about you than about love. All I know about love, I know from you. Who needs another love song? Awesome, thank you. What is this if not a spectrum of emotion? that we will watch me experience in front of a live audience. Um, thank you for that. That was lovely. Um, I've, I've known Dale a long time, and I never knew he was quite the performer that he is. So I might have you do some more readings or something. Um, the next uh, instructor who's coming up, and this is a last but not least scenario, um, William Haywood Henderson. I remember either emailing him or calling him. Does anybody else conflate those in their memory? Emailing and calling? Yeah. But I either wrote something meaningful to him or said something. When I was reading his second novel, The Rest of the Earth, which was really eloquent on my part, it was something like, this is a freaking masterpiece. <laughs> um, which is how I feel about all of his writing. And I think Those who have read either Native or The Rest of the Earth or Augusta Locke probably know this is somebody who sweats uh, the sentences, the word choice, uh, the way it all builds and creates this unforgettable landscape. And so that's already something I'm jealous of. But then there was a guy taking both of our classes. I hate to be so self-referential, but that's all I've got. Um... (laughs) And he was taking both of our classes, and at one point he said, you know, Bill's really the crown jewel of this place. (laughs) And then he dropped out of my class. (laughs) And and I thought, damn, I'm good at hiring people. William Haywood Henderson. I'm here to talk about my crown jewels. <laughs> well, I wanted to say something nice about 
Lisa Mahoney, but no. <laughs> um, she's been in our workshops, the advanced workshop and the master class for four years maybe. And um, she's writing a series of novels um, for which she's created the most magnificent world. I mean, every time we read another chapter, we all just get pissed off that we can't go to these places. Um, the, the one I remember most vividly at the moment, because it was recent, was this city made of blocks of salt. And for windows, they would make these thin sheets of salt, and it hardly ever rained in this desert region. It was so gorgeous. On top of that, she's created uh, a whole series of myths. Um, there are these guide, guide lord characters who can, when they touch someone's skin, they can read their thoughts and emotions. So in order to be polite to stone minds like us, they wear gloves. But then sometimes if they want to be tricky, they wear gloves that are sort of lace, so they can touch you through the lace. And then, I shouldn't say this, but those of us in class read recently a um, sex scene among these guide lords, which you've never read anything like this before. <laughs> Just imagine knowing what's going on. Well, anyway. Um, so she's going to read from the second um, book of her series of three books, I think it is. Um, and here she is, Lisa Mahoney. Everything everyone says about Bill is true. He's awesome. He's from awesome exercises to truly inspirational. Unfortunately, I'm not reading you sex scenes, so sorry. About that. <laughs> um, the working title of this novel is uh, Merciless Service, but I'm not reading you from the first chapter, so I'm going to give you a quick summary. The father of our hero died in chapter one. Mero Andalon, who's our hero, starts taking a drug called Webover, which partially blocks his uh, empathetic sense so he can survive through the collective grief of all the mourners who come together in his house. So he becomes addicted to that again. In chapter three, Mero realizes that his for former fiance, Lelia Rosano, is in love with someone else. And right before we begin, Miro has just heard an oracle he hates bitterly give a prophecy from a god he doesn't respect. Miro Andalon rode home from the oracle temple and climbed two stairs at a time to reach his rooftop studio, a room of glass walls commissioned by a transplanted Haddish great-grandmother. Against her will, she'd been transported to Alhara to marry her second cousin, and as her personal bride price, had demanded that the studio be built on the roof. She'd survived by painting stark landscapes, much as Miro survived by writing poetry. Homesickness drove her to create vast canvases of desert sandstone cliffs, azure skies, and rolling seas, and then hurl the painted memories into the ocean as offerings to the same waters that caressed the beaches of both her homes. Miro had rescued her few remaining paintings, unfinished or unhurled, from the rooms of history's true and warped, and had set them around his studio. From time to time, she whispered to him thoughts filled with colors, spices, dry heat, and textures, luxurious words that beautified his measured stanzas of precise nouns and active verbs. She needed the white-hot Alharan sunlight that poured through the windows to recreate memories of the Hadad lands so she could paint. But Miro inhabited the studio at night when the stars shone like pinpricks in the blue-black sky, or the moon spread her cool, silvery fingers over his blank white pages. That night, he lit a hundred castles until the glass walls melted away and the little points of flames inside merged with the vast pool of sparkling stars outside. Sitting on a high stool at his great-grandmother's hand-carved drafting table, he set aside what he'd been working on for the past two weeks. Poems duty demanded he should write to memorialize and honor his dead father. Unfortunately, his great-grandmother's spirit had not influenced that work, and excess wine and lingering webover had. On stacks of papers were words like father, guide, steady, reliable. He'd boxed the words, X'd through them, and started over. Insightful, calm, proper, consensus builder. He'd struggled with synonyms and adjectives, realigned them, constructed stiff stanzas and hatched awkward rhymes restarting over and over until 16 pages were filled with scratched-out lines, notes, and rewrites. 
No universal truth had risen above the personal grief. That night, however, he smoothed a fresh piece of paper over his failed earlier work, shifted his weight on the hard stool, crossed his ankles, and recorded every word of his conversation with the oracle so that he could begin to decipher what she'd meant by the exact phrases she'd used. After his quill pen hovered over the whiteness of the page through an entire glass of wine while he studied levels of meanings of her words. Finally, he sharpened a new point and dipped it in the ink. As if he were about to begin a poem, he made a box in the upper left and wrote, The Oracle, Lady Irinolu, Giacomo, Paolo, Slaves. Money, taxes, 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 taxes. Slaves? Slaves? He underlined the word slaves so heavily that excess ink bubbled out of the tip. He tried to staunch its flow by blotting it, but it got away from him. Tiny black veins interconnecting all the words on the snowy page. He wished again he could still talk to his father. If the oracle didn't know about Jockham's overdue taxes, nor about the slaves, what was she hinting at? But why should Miro care what the oracle wanted? She'd endangered Lelia and put her alone with the orphan guardian brother, so fuck the oracle. Whatever she wanted, he would do the opposite. He didn't have to talk to his father to know what he would have done. He'd have rallied his allies and friends in the council house, called in all their house's debts, censured Lord Rosano for his laxity and allowing it to go on under his roof, and forced an alliance motion, Lelia Rosano, to marry Miro Andalon. But if Lelia loved someone else now, would their marriage become a prison for her as it had been for another of Miro's ancestral great-grandmothers? She, chafing at her forced marriage, had ordered a horse-drawn coach made entirely of gold filigree just to rile his great-grandfather. He tried to order his wife to stay put in his house despite that they'd long ago stopped even speaking with each other. When the coach and its invoice were delivered, he'd paid for it, and then he'd ordered all the other coaches' wagons and carriages be burned in a massive fire under her window so she would choke in the smoke. After that, whenever she wanted to escape him, she had to be driven into the outer city using the golden coach, with a whole brigade of soldiers sworn to the house of Andalon to protect her against the mobs of brigands it attracted. This had ended her secret affairs and kept her imprisoned much more effectively. Would Miro, like his ancestor, burn his wife's carriages, leaving Lelia no option but to use a gold filigree one? Finding his glass emptied, he swigged a mouthful straight from the pitcher. He ran the feather quill through his lips to smooth it into the swooping, arced curve that helped him think, but this time it cut his tongue. Hot beads of iron-flavored blood blossomed in his mouth. What did he want? He wanted Lelia to come back of her own volition. He wanted her glowing, rose-orange, lusty love to be focused on him again, not on her guardian brother. Guardian and guide, bound to each other by vows and interconnected duties, all broken. He still could not believe she would put her mind into her own honor-bound guardian brother to seduce him, not her. It just couldn't have been like that. His hand leapt and careened over the page, forming massive uneven letters, sharing and stealing, penetration or protection, oaths, bonds, promises broken, penetration, penetration, penimentilation. Three? Three halves? Miro slashed his quill through the words. It snapped. He jumped off his stool, tipping the ink bottle over. The ink rushed blue-black, covering the words. Miro's guardian brother, Uella, shook his head as he woke from a nap in the corner. Miro grabbed the legs of the stool, circled it up and behind his head, and smashed it down. The slender legs of the olive wood table shattered and collapsed. Dozens of pages fluttered into the wreckage. Miro took two steps backward. The round-bellied wine pitcher teetered on its side, drizzling Modelo Ruby Red Reserve onto fumbled palms honoring his father. My lord, Uilla said, popping to a stand. That was weeks of work. Trash, junk, excrement. The desktop, somehow unbroken, purchased perched on an edge in a heap of shattered wooden legs. Miro picked it up and hurled it across the room. It sliced into several candles, knocking them over. Hot wax spilled on carpets, on sofas, on heavy curtains, and ignited them. Uella sprinted past him and flung open the door to the stairs. Water! Help! Fire! Our Lord's room is aflame! He ran back into the room, grabbed a rug, and began slapping down blazes. Miro picked up the pitcher, guzzled more wine, and watched Uella smothering flames with a centuries-old faded tribal carpet brought back from the desert by one of his great-grandmothers. He backed up another two steps, turned, and walked out onto the balcony. Out on front of the beach, in front of his house, 
The rotting ships of his rebellious ancestor, Lord General King Zaren Andalon, rocked in an angry surf. A storm was coming. The broken hulls were shadows in the dark night, distinguishable only by the stars they blocked out on the horizon. Here, 600 years earlier, the House of Andalon had lost the final battle of civil wars Zaren had started 50 years earlier. Reinforcements landed by sea in the night hadn't been enough to defeat the forces of Alhara. Called the enemy of the guided lands by some and the liberator by others, Zaren Andalon was the only Lord General who had ever been stripped of his generalship by council house vote. His sunken troop ships protruded from the surf like skeletons still losing a battle, this one against a wicked sea. Each year, another rotten beam or two broke off in a gale or wild waves. Miro collected the sun-bleached ironwood that washed up on the beach and stored the pieces in a shed. Behind him, a dozen servants had put out the fires and were removing burnt drapery and cushions. Zarin may have been rebellious, but he would never have sold his own people into slavery. Miro polished off the last of the wine, put the broken stub of a quill into the pitcher, and hurled them toward the sea. how you write a novel. Yes. <laughs> so there are three books so far? This is the second of three? Yes. <laughs> I'm so happy for you and not jealous at all. Um, thank you all for coming tonight. This has been extraordinary. I hope you feel the love that I'm feeling right now. This is so entertaining. And this is what we've all done. This is what we're doing with our time instead of watching the Rockies get one and a half hits for $125. But that was great, too. Um, but anyway, thank you for being here and come back. How many of you are reading at LitFest? We have some people here reading? Excellent. So I already, I already know this is going to be a great set of readings. You, everybody's welcome. Those are free, open to the public, same, same kind of drill. Um, and keep writing, everyone. And Woo-hoo. thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.